Welcome back, Brainiacs. We're talking about Hail and Farewell, Book 3, Chapter 7, First Half. Actually, we're not talking about it because it prompted zero discussion. It prompted zero prompts. It was so boring that it didn't even prompt a prompt. Anywho, let's just keep reading then. The second half of Chapter, whatever this is, 7, goes a little bit like this. Lady Gregory is a Perse, and the Perses are an ancient Galloway family. The best-known branch is a Moyard branch, for it was the Moyard that Burton Pierce bred and hunted the Galloway blazers for over 30 years till his death. Moyard has passed away, but Roxborough continues, never having indulged in either horses or hounds. A worthy but undistinguished family in love, in war, or in politics never having indulged in anything except a taste for Bible reading in the cottages. A staunch Protestant family, if nothing else, the Roxborough Purses certainly are. Mrs. Purse and her two elder daughters were ardent soul-gatherers in the days gone by, but Lady Gregory did not join them in their missionary work, holding always to the belief that there was great danger in persuading anyone to leave the religion learnt in childhood, for we could never be sure that another would find a place in the heart. In saying as much, she wins our hearts, but our intelligence warns us against the seduction, and we remember that we may not acquiesce in what we believe to be error. The ignorant and numbed mind cannot be accepted bull to God, so do we think and take our stand with Miss Purse in the older sisters. We are glad, however, though we are not sure that our gladness on such a point is not a sign of weakness. Still, we are glad that Sir William chose Augusta rather than one of her elder sisters, either of whom would certainly have fired up in the carriage, when Sir William, on his way to Cool, suggested to his bride that she should refrain from pointing out his tenants, what she believed to be a different teaching of the Bible, from that which they received from the parish priest. He would probably say, You have made no converts. We have forgotten Mrs. Shaw Taylor's Christian name, but Agnes will serve our purpose as well as another. You have made no converts, Agnes, but you have shaken the faith of thousands. The ground at Roxborough has been cleared for the sowing, but Kiltartan can wait. Which path should have should Agnes have followed? Is clearly the title of a six-shilling novel, which I pass on to my contemporaries. Meanwhile, I have pleasure in stating here, for my statement is implicated in the artistic movement, the Abbey Theatre, that the Gospels were never read by Lady Gregory and round Kiltartan. I should like to fill in a page or two about her married life. But though we know our neighbours very well in one direction, in another there is nothing that we know less than our neighbours, and Lady Gregory has never been, for me, a very real person. I imagine her without a mother, a father, or sisters, or brothers, sans attaché. It is difficult to believe, but it is nevertheless true that fearing a too flagrant mistake... I had to ask a friend the other day if I were right in supposing that Mrs. Shaw Taylor was Lady Gregory's sister. An absurd question, truly, for Mrs. Shaw Taylor's house, I have forgotten its name, is within a mile of Tillyra, and I must have been there many times. We may cultivate our memories in one direction, but by doing so we curtail them in another, and documentary evidence jars my style I like to write of Lady Gregory from the evening that Edward drove me over to Cool, the night of the dinner party. There is in the first part of this book a portrait of her as I saw her that night, a slim young woman of medium height and slight figure, her hair parted in the middle, was brushed in wide bands about 
a uh, brow which even at that time was intellectual. The phrase previously used, if my memory does not deceive me, was high and cultured. I think I said that she wore a high school air and the phrase expresses the idea she conveyed to me, an air of mixed timidity and restrained anxiety. On the whole, it was pleasant to pass from her to Sir William, who was more at his ease, more natural. He spoke to me affably about the Velasquez in the National Gallery, which was not a Velasquez, as it is now set down as a Zurbaran. But the last attribution does not convince me any more than the first. He wore the Lord Palmerston air. It was the air of that generation, but he did not wear it always, did not <clears throat> wear it nearly so well as my father. These two men were of the same generation and their interests were the same. Both were travelled men. Sir William's travels were not so original as my father's, but the race horses that kept, he kept were so not so fast. And his politics were not so definite. He was more of an opportunist than my father, more careful and cautious, and therefore less interesting. Galway had not produced so many interesting men as Mayo. Its pastures are richer, but its men are thinner in intellect. But if we are considering Lady Gregory's rise in the world, we must admit that she owes a great deal to her husband. He took her to London, and she enjoyed at least one season in a tall house in the little enclosure known as St. George's Place, and there met a number of eminent men, whose books and conversation were in harmony with her conception of life, still somewhat formal. One afternoon, Leckie, the historian, left her drawing room as I entered it, and I remember the look of pleasure on her face when she mentioned the name of her visitor, and her pleasure did not end with Leckie. For a few minutes afterwards, Edward Arnold, the poet of the light of Asia, was announced. She would have liked to have had him all to herself, and I think that she thought my conversation a little ill-advised when I spoke to Sir Edwin of a book lately published on the subject of Buddhism, and asked him what book was the best to read on this subject. He did not answer my question directly, but very soon he was telling Lady Gregory that he had just received a letter from India from a distinguished Buddhist who had read The Light of Asia and could find no fault in it. The Buddhist doctrine was related by him had been related faultlessly, and with the little anecdotes Sir Edwin thought my question sufficiently answered. The conversation turned on the coloured races, and I remember Sir Edwin's words. The world will not be perfect, he said, until we get the black notes into the gamut. The pretty bit of telegraphies which pleased Lady Gregory, and when Sir Edwin rose to go, she produced a fan and asked him to write his name upon one of the sticks. But she did not ask me to write my name, though at the time I had written not only a modern lover, but also a mama's wife, and I left the house feeling for the first time that the world I lived in was not so profound as I had imagined it to be. If I remember the circumstances quite rightly, Sir William came into the room just as I was leaving it, and she followed him, the fan. She looked a little distressed at her want of tact, and it was some years afterwards that I heard, not without surprise, that she had shown some literary ability in the editing of his memoirs. The publication of these memoirs was a great day for Roxburgh, but not such a great day for Ireland as the day she drove over to Tillyra. 
I was not present at the time, but from Edward's account of the meeting, she seems to have recognised her need in Yeats at once, foreseeing dimly, of course, but foreseeing that he would help her out of the conventions and prejudices and give her wings to soar in the free ideas and instincts. She was manifestly captured by his genius and seemed to dread that the inspiration of hills, the hills of Sligo had nourished might. Whither in the temple where he used to spend long months with his friend Arthur Simmons, he had finished all his best work at the time. The work thereby he will live by. The Countess Kathleen had not long been written, and he was dreaming the poems in the shadow of the, of the shadowy waters. And where could he dream it more fortunately than by the lake of at Cool? The wild swans gather there, and every summer he returned to Cool to write the shadowy waters, riding under her tutelage, and she serve and she serving him as amanuensis collecting the different versions, etc. Thus much of the literary history of this time has already been written, but that what has not been written, or only hinted at, is the interdependence of these two minds. It was he, no doubt, who suggested to her the writing of the Cachulian legends. It must have been so, for he had long been dreaming an epic poem to be called Cachulian. But feeling himself unable for so long a task, he entrusted it to Lady Gregory and led her from cabin to cabin in search of a style, and they returned to cool ruminating of the beautiful language of the peasants and the masterpieces quickening in it. Yeats, a little sad, but by no means envious towards Lady Gregory, and sad, if at all, that his own stories in the volume entitled The Secret Rose were not written in living speech. It is pleasant to think that as he opened the park gates for her to pass through the thought glided into his mind that perhaps in some subsequent edition she might help him with the translation, but the moment was for the consideration of a difficulty that had arisen suddenly. The legends of Cuchulain are written in a very remote language, bearing little likeness to the modern Irish which Lady Gregory had learnt in common with everybody connected with the Irish literary movement, Yeats and myself excepted. A dictionary of the ancient language exists, and it is easy to look out. Look, sorry, is easy to look out a word, but a knowledge of early or Middle Irish is only obtained gradually after years of study. Lady Gregory confesses herself in a preface to be no scholar, and that she pieced together her texts from various French and German translations. This method recommends itself to Yeats, who says in his preface that by collating the various versions of the same tale and taking the best bits out of each, the stories are now told perfectly for the first time. A singular voice for a critic of Yeats's understanding to hold a strange theory to advocate, the strangest we do not hesitate to say, that has ever been put forward by so distinguished a poet and critic as Yeats. He was a severer, se- severer critic the day that he threw out Elizabeth Edwards' play with so much indignity in Tillyra. He was then a monk of literature, an inquisitor, a talk martyr, but in this preface he bows to Lady Gregory's taste as if she were the tale-teller that, that the world had been waiting for, one whose art exceeded that of Balzac or Turgenev, for neither or neither would have claimed the right to refashion the old legend in accordance with his own tastes or the taste of his night neighbourhood. I left out a good deal, Lady Gregory writes in her preface, I thought you would not care about, 
The U refers to the people of Kiltartan, to whom Lady Gregory dedicates her book. It seems to me that, in accordance with his own taste or the taste of his neighbourhood, I left out a good deal. Lady Gregory writes in her preface, I thought you would not care. They... Oh, I think I just read the same line twice. It seems to me that Balzac and Turgenev would have taken a different view as to the duty of a modern writer of the old legend, but both would have said it is never justifiable to alter a legend. It has come down to us because it contains some precious message, and the message the legend carries will be lost or worsened if the story be altered or mutilated or deformed. <clears throat> and who am I, Balzac would have said, that I should alter a message that has come down from a far off time, a message that often enfolded in the tale so secretly that it is all things to all men. My province, he would have continued, is not to alter the story but to interpret it, and we have not to listen very intently to hear him say, not only I may, I must interpret. There can be a little doubt that Yeats is often injudicious in his noble preface, and he exposes Lady Gregory to criticism when he depreciates the translation from which Lady Gregory said she worked. She might have written, which I quote for, she follows Kuno Mayer's translation of The Wooing of Emir, sentence by sentence, and it is our puzzle to discover how Kuno Mayer's English is worthless when he signs it and beautifully and beautiful when Lady Gregory quotes it. A clear case of literary transubstantiation, I said, speaking of a miracle to a friend who happened to be a Roman Catholic, and she gave me the definition of the catechism, the substance in the same is the same, but the accident is different. Or it may have been the incident is the same and the substance is different. One cannot always be sure that one remembers theology correctly. A little examination, however, Lady Gregory's text enabled us to dismiss the theological aspect as untenable. Here and there, we find she has altered the words. Kunomea's title is The Wooing of Emir. Lady Gregory has changed it to The Courting of Emir. She is writing living speech. And in Kunomea wrote that Emir received Castulane in her bower. Lady Gregory, for the same reason, would certainly change it to her. She asked him into her parlour. The word lawn in the sentence, and as the young girls were sitting together on their bench on the lawn, they heard coming towards them a clattering of hooves, the creaking of the chariot, the grating of wheels belongs to Lady Gregory. Of that I am so sure that it would be needless for me to refer to Kunome's version of the legend. No light diadem of praise Yeats sets on Lady Gregory's brow when he says that she has discovered a speech. Beautiful as that of Morris and a living speech into the bargain. He continues that she, as she moves among her people, she learnt to love the beautiful speech of those who think in Irish and to understand that it is as true a dialect of English as the dialect of Burns wrote in. But when we look into the beautiful speech that Lady Gregory learnt as she moved among her people, we find that it consists of no more than a dozen turns of speech dropped into pages of English so ordinary that redeemed from these phrases it might appear in any newspaper without attracting attention and she does not seem to have inquired if the phrases she uses are merely local or part of the English language. She writes again and again a phrase which we find in the burial of Sir John Moore, evidently under the impression that she is writing something extremely Irish, that the foe and the stranger should tread over his head and we far away on the billow. It would seem that in the opinion of many the line, and we far away on the billow, marks the poem as having been written by an Irishman, a careless criticism, for it is certain that the turn of speech referred to is to be found in Shakespeare, in Milton, in Morris, even in Dickens. It is heard in English in everyday speech. 
So not so often as it is heard in Ireland, but it is heard, and it is was a mistake on Lady Gregory's part to accept it as a characteristically Irish. And her mistake shows how very little she thought she gave, how little thought she gave to the question of idiomatic speech. She writes, he himself, instead of omitting the parasitical, as she might very well have done, the omission would have suggested Ireland without any violation to the English language, and her attitude towards the verb is to be. To be is quite unconsidered and commonplace. She does not seem to have realised that in Ireland the verb to be is used to imply continuous action, and it seems to me very important to have noticed that Irish, English, and provincial English preserve a distinction that has disappeared from English as spoken in polite society and taught at Oxford and Cambridge. Everybody in Ireland and a great many among the English middle classes will still say... I shall be seeing so-and-so tonight and will tell him, etc. And everybody in Ireland and a great number among the English middle classes still say, will you be having your letters sent on, which is surely richer English than will you have your letters sent on. My parlourmaid will always says, will you be dressing for dinner tonight and will you be wearing your silk hat tonight? Thereby distinguishing between a simple and continuous future, future action, it is our parlourmaids and their likes that carry on the subtleties of tents. A much more important point than the aspiration of the letter H. I have heard of something called extension lectures at Oxford and Cambridge, but without having the least notion of what is meant by extension lectures, I would suggest that <clears throat> some of the yeomen of Oxfordshire should be sent for to teach the professors, learned no doubt in the Latin and Greek languages, but who have no English. But the efforts of the un Educated to teach, the educated would be made in vain. The English language is perishing, and it is natural that it should perish with the race. Race and grammatical sense go together. The English have striven and done a great deal in the world. The English are a tired race, and the weariness betrays itself in the language, and the most decadent of all the educated classes. We say in Ireland, I am just after feeding the birds, and this is a richer phrase, faintly different from I have just fed the birds. All those delicate shades have dropped out of modern English. They still exist in the language, but they are no longer used. They are slightly archaic today, or provincial, and the source where form the language is refreshed. Rural English is being destroyed by board schools. God help the writer who puts pen to paper in 50 years' time, for all that will be left of their language will be a dry shank bone that has been lying a long while on the dust heap of empire. The difference between rural and urban speech should have been studied by Lady Gregory, but we fear she has not given a thought to it. She was just content to pepper her page with a few idiomatic turns of speech, which she very often does not use correctly. It is what I think, said Farragain, that it is the fire of Conair, the High King, and I would be glad he not to be there tonight, for it would be a pity if harm would come on him or his life be shortened, for he is a branch in its blossom. To my ear, I come from the same country as Lady Gregory. This is not living speech. What the Galloway, and I may add the Mayo, peasant would say is, and it's glad I'd be if he wasn't there tonight. We read on, and at the end of about ten lines, we come upon what use will it be if I be I to speak to him. 
and then her pen fills up another page before she thinks it necessary it necessary to drop in a welcome before you a pretty phrase which may be idiom though i have never heard it in either mayo or galloway we turn the leaves and catch sight of and it's you have what all the men of Ulster are wanting. If we continue a little further, it is quite possible we should come upon, and they do be saying, and it is what I think, but we should not meet anywhere in the book an attempt to make, to mould or to fashion language out of the idiom of the Galloway peasant. And it is astonished I am altogether. Wait. Whoops, I just lost my place completely. And it's astonished I am altogether that Yeats could have brought himself to compare this patchwork to the beautiful speech of Morris or of Burns, and to speak of the manuscripts that were consulted for Lady Gregory says herself in the preface that she cannot read the manuscripts, but has translated them from French to German versions of the stories, and it is mighty hard to know how he could have rec- reconciled himself to the adaptation of barbaric tales to the drawing room he must have said often to himself she wouldn't be bolderize the bible in the interests of the drawing room and the contrast repetition of a phrase like and it wasn't a chair they gave him but a stool and it not in the corner must have ended by boring him for no one is so easily bored by the repetition of a phrase as yeats it must have been that phrase that drove him out of the cool and sent him off again in pursuit of the golden-haired Isolde, whom perhaps the, miss, the poet missed or found in Brittany or in Passy. And it was on one of those journeys that he discovered Singe, a man of such rough and uncultivated aspect that he looked as if he had come out of Derrenrush. He was not a peasant, as Yeats first supposed, but came like all great writers from the middle classes. His mother had a house in Kingston, which he avoided as much as possible, and it was in the Rue d'Arras that Yeats found him. Dans une chambre meuble, on the fifth floor. He was on his way back to Ireland and might stay in Kingstown for a while till his next quarter's allowance came in. He had but sixty pounds a year, but as soon as he got it, he would be away to the west, to the Aran Islands. Yeats gasped, and it was the romance of living half one's life in the Latin Quarter and the other half in the Aran Islands that captured Yeats's imagination. He must have lent a willing ear to Singer's tale of an unpublished manuscript, a book which he had written about the Aran Islands, but his interest in it doubtless flagged when Singe told him that it was not written in peasant speech. Singe must have answered, but peasant speech in Aran is Irish. Yeats remembered with regret that this was so, for he would have preferred Anglo-Irish, and he listened to Singe telling him that he had some colloquial knowledge of the Irish language he had had to pick up a little Irish. Life in Iran would be impossible without Irish, and Yeats awoke from his meditation. This strange Irishman was solitary, who only cared to talk with peasants, and was interested in things rather than ideas, in the Rue de Arras, it must have been Yeats that did all the admiration, and Singe must have been a little bored, but quite willing that Yeats should discover him in him a man of genius. A strange experience for Singe, who, however convinced he was inly of his own genius, must have wondered how Yeats had 
divined it, for Yeats had no not pretended to feel any interest in the articles of French writers that Singe had sent around to the English press, adding thereby sometimes a few pounds to his income, but only sometimes, for these articles were so trite that they were seldom accepted. John Eglinton confesses once a year that he could not stomach the article that Singe sent to him for publication in Dana, and they were so incorrectly written that Best, who knew Singe in the Rue de Arras, tells that he used to go over them, for Singe could not write correctly at that time. Only one out of three was accepted, and the one that came to Dana no doubt came with all the edges worn by continual transmission through the post. It is Best that should write about Singe, for he helped him to finish his room in the Rue de Arras, Singe was very helpless in the actual affairs of life. He could not go out and buy furniture. Best had to go with him, and they brought home a mattress and some chairs and a bed on a barrow, and they returned to fetch the rest. There was a fiddle hanging on the wall of the garret in the Rue de Ars, but as Singe never played it, Best began to wonder only if Singe could play, and as if suspecting Best of disbelief in his music, Singe took down it down one evening and drew the bow across the strings, in a way that convinced Best, who played the fiddle himself, and as if satisfied, he returned to the fiddle to its nail, saying that he only played it in the Aran Islands in the evenings when the peasants wanted to dance. They have no ear for music, he said, and do not recognise a melody. What? exclaimed Best. Only as they recognise the cry of a bird or animal, not as a musician. Only the beat of the jig enters their ears, Best replied, in a voice tinged with melancholy. In Yeats's imagination, playing the fiddle in the Iron Islanders and reciting poems to them are one of the same thing, and he recognised instantly that Sinjin the Gleeman that was in himself, but he had remained, and would remain forever, unrealised, and his imagination caught fire at the conjecture of the Rudy Us and the Iron Islands, and whosoever has followed this narrative so far can see Yeats leaning forward in Sinjin's chair, getting more and more interested in him at every moment, his literary passions rising till they carry him to his feet and set him walking about the dusty carpet from the window to the table at which Singe worked, crying, come to Ireland and write folk plays for me, a play about Iran. But the play I've shown you is of no account. The language will help you to know your own people. And better than any description, this dialogue represents the meeting of Yeats and Singe in the Rudy Ross, Singe's large impassive face into which hardly any light of expression can come ever came, listening to Yeats with a look of perplexity moving over its immobility, and Yeats's passion purely literary, steadily mounting. You must come back and perfect yourself in the language. You must live among the people again, he reports himself to have said. You must come to Ireland, a theatre in Dublin in is building a theatre is building in Dublin for the production of folk players, or soon will be building. And he told Singe how Miss Horniman Horniman a lady of literary tastes and ample income, had decided to give to Dublin what no other city in England, in an English-speaking country, possessed, a subventional theatre, write me an Aran play. We will open the theatre with it. And he began to speak in Singe's immediate return to Iran. I should die, Singe, his reporter to have answered, not before you have written the masterpiece, he answered, and he continued day after day to subjugate Singe's mind, till one Saturday evening after a talk lasting till long past midnight, Singe declared his adherence to the new creed of living speech. When a man's mind is made up, his feet must go, must set out on the way, Yeats replied. Singe's acquiesced, and when he had 
received two little cheques which were due to him for articles. He folded his luggage according to promise and a few days after presented himself at the Nassau Hotel and was introduced to Lady Gregory who encouraged him to confide in her and he told her the story of his health and she very kindly took his part against Yeats who was all for Iran, not for the Middle Island, for their only Irish is spoken and the dialect is what we want. That may be, Mr. Yeats, but Mr. Singe may not be able to stand the climate in the autumn, and she turned to Singe, who told her that the best time would be a little later when the people would be out digging in their potato fields. Lady Gregory agreed that this was so, and after some demur, Yeats yielded as he always does to Lady Gregory, and the three were of one mind that the mild climate of Wicklow was suitable for Singe's health, and also to the study of living speech, for the tinkers met in the Wicklow in the autumn, Yeats cried, you mustn't miss the gathering, and a few days later Singe wrote that he had been fortunate enough to fall in with a band of tinkers, he had heard an old tall lean man cry after the screaming girl, black hell to your son, you followed me so far, you'll follow me to the end, and driving their shagging ponies to lean horses on the up hillside, the tinkers made of their annual assemblage, exchanging the wives and arranging the roads they were to take, the signs to be left at the crossroads, the fairs they were to attend and the meeting places for their following year, but this was not at all good news. Singe had gained the goodwill of the certain tinker and his wife and was learning their life and languages. They strolled along the lanes, cadging and stealing as they went, squatting at every tide, at even tide, in the side of the dry ditch, like a hare in a gap he listened, and when he had mastered every turn of their speech, he left the tinker and turned into the hills, spending some weeks in the cottager, Joining a little later, another group of tinkers accompanied by a servant girl who had suddenly wearied of scrubbing and mangling, mangling, boiling for pigs, cooking and working dough and making beds in the evening. It would be better, she had thought, to lie under the hedgerow and in telling me of this girl, Singe seemed to be telling me his own story. He too disliked the regular life of his mother's house and preferred to wander with the tinkers and when tired of them to lie abed smoking with a peasant and awake amid the smells of shag and potato skins and the sieve in the corner of the room. In answer to an inquiry how the day passed in the cottage, he told me that after breakfast he scrambled over a low wall out of which grew a single hawthorn and looked round for a place where he might loosen his strap and when that job was done he kept on walking ahead thinking of the dialogue of his plays modifying it at every style after a gossip with <clears throat> some herdsman or pig jobber whomever he met might meet returning through the cold spring evening when the stars shine brightly through the naked trees licking his lips appreciating the fine flavour of some drunkard's oath or blasphemy yeats was at this time in the hands of the fays and a committee and the performance of the national theatre were given in different halls and when singe came up from the country to read Riders of the, to the Siege. The company, Yeats, who did not wish to have any misunderstanding on the subject, cried Sophocles across the table, and fearing that he was not impressive enough, he said, No, Aesophilus. And that same afternoon he said to me in Grafton Street, I would, I were as sure of your future and of my own as I am of Singe's. Irishmen, he said, had written well before Singe, but they had written well by casting off Ireland. But Singe was the first... Man that Ireland had inspired, and and I asked if he were going to find his fortune in Ireland, his literary fortune, for the Well of the Saints had very nearly emptied the Abbey Theatre. He were but twenty in all in the stalls, and Yeats's family, Sarah, Percival, William Bailey, John England, and A. were Longworth and dear Edward, who supported the Abbey Theatre, though he was averse from peasant plays. 
And all this sneering at Catholic practices and utterly distasteful to me, he said to me, and I can hear the whining voice of the Proselytia. Through it all, I never will go against my opinions, and when I hear the sacred name, I assure you, you mean the name of God, Edward, don't you? I never like to mention that the sacred name is enough, but if you are speaking French, you may, don't mon Dieu, at every sentence. If it isn't wrong in one language, how can it be wrong in another? A smile trickled across Edward's face, round and large and rusted as a ripe pumpkin, and he muttered, mon amour, more, mon amour, more. He was in the abbey the first night of the Playboy, and on my return from Paris, he told me that, though the noise was great, he had heard it enough blasphemy to keep him out of the theatre thenceforth and the next morning had read in the papers that Ireland had been exhibited in a shameful light as an immoral country and oddly enough the scene of immortality is your own native town George he told me that the hooting had begun about the middle of the third act of the words if all women of Mayo were standing before me and they in there he shrank from completing a sentence and muttered something about the evocation of a disgusting spectacle I agree with you Edward that shift evokes a picture of Blay Calico, but the delightful underwear of Madame, now George, and then, amused at his own folly, which he can no more overcome than anybody else, he began to laugh and shaking like a jelly, puffing solemnly all the while at his churwaden. The indignation was so great that I some- thought sometimes the pit was going to break in, lower the bloody curtain, and give us something we bloody well wander crowded pit, kept on shouting, and looking at Edward, I imagine I could see him in the stalls near the stage, turning around in terror, his face growing purpler and purpler all the same, he said, through the pain that the singes of relevant irreverent remarks caused me is very great. I disapprove altogether of interrupting a performance, but Yeats shouldn't have called in the police. I, nationalists, should never call for the police, but it would... <clears throat> supposing a housebreaker forces his way in here or into Tullyra. He said that that was different, and after wasting some time in discussion regarding the liberty of the speech and the rights of the property, he asked me if I had read the play, and I told him that on reading about the tumult in the Abbey Theatre, I had to telegraph from Paris for a copy, and that the first lines convinced me that Ireland had at last begotten a masterpiece. The first lines of Pegan's Michael letter to the My- Mr. Michael O'Flaherty, general dealer in Castle Bar, for six yards of stuff for I to make a yellow gown, a pair of boots, a lengthy heels and them, and brassy eyes, a hut of suited for the wedding day, a fine-tooth comb, and never was there such a picture of peasant life in a few lines, and at every sentence my admiration increased. At the end of the act I cried out, a masterpiece, a masterpiece, of course they felt insulted, the girls coming in with presents for the young stranger pleased me, but a cold wind of doubt seemed to blow over the pages when the father came on the stage a bloody bandage about his head, and Edward, oh, you're asleep, no, I'm listening, I was so clearly did I see the disaster of that body bandage that I could hardly read through the third act. But you see nothing in the play. Yes, I do. Only a little thing. Sean Coe is a very good character, and the Widow Queen is not bad either. But the language, Edward, you have made up your mind that this play is a masterpiece, but I am going to give in to you. But the style, Edward, it isn't English. I like the Irish language and the English language, but it doesn't like the mixture. And then puffing at his pipe for a few seconds, he said, I like the intellectual drama. The conversation turned into upon Ibsen, and we talked pleasantly until one in the morning, and then bidding him good night, I returned to Ally Place, delighted with my own perspective. Picassity, for there could be no doubt that it was the bloody damp bandage that caused the row in the Abbey Theatre. The language is beautiful, but I had admitted to Edward that I had only glanced through the third act, and Edward had answered, if you had read the whole of it, you might be of my opinion that it wasn't likely that Edward and I should agree, but the playboy, but it might well be that I was judging it hurriedly, and I would have been wiser... I reflected to have read the play through before attempting to explain why the humour of the audience had changed suddenly and I resolved to read the play next morning but my dislike of reading is so great that I overlooked it and when Yeats came to see me instead of the praise which he had come to hear and which he was craving for he heard some rather vain 
dissertations and only half-hearted praise. Again, my impulsiveness was my ruin. The play would have been understood if it had been read carefully, and the evening would have been one of exaltation, whereas it went by mournfully. Yeats, in the chimney corner, listening to suggestions that would preserve the comedy note, he went away, depressed, saying, however, that it would be as well that I should write the singe about this play, since I liked the greater part, but... He did not think that Singe would make the, any alterations, and the letter I sent to Singe was superficial. I hope he destroyed it. He was glad that his play had pleased me, but he could not alter the third act. It had been written again and again, thirteen times. That is all I remember of this letter, interesting on account of the circumstances in which it was written, and the rarity of Singe's correspondence. It is a pity his letter was destroyed and no copy kept. Our letters would illuminate the page that I am now writing, exhibiting us both in our weakness and our strength. Singe, in his strength, for if the play had been altered, we should have all been disgraced, and it was Yeats's courage that saved us in Dublin. He did not argue, he piled affirmation upon affirmation, and he succeeded in the end, but we will not anticipate. But if Dublin would not listen to The Playboy, Dublin read the text. Edition after edition was published, and we talked The Playboy round our firesides, how we talked, week after week, month after month, the Abbey Theatre declining all the while, till at last the brothers Faye rose in revolt against Yeats's management, accusing him of hindering the dramatic movements by producing no plays except those written by his intimate friends. Yeats repelled the accusation by offering to submit those that he had rejected to the judgment of Professor Tyrrell, a quite unnecessary concession on the part of Yeats, for Wiley Fay is but an amusing Irish comedian, and it was presumptuous for him and his brother to set themselves against a poet. They resigned, and one night Yeats came to me with the grave news that the Fays had seceded. I feel I must talk to somebody, he said, flinging himself into a chair. A is the only man who can distribute courage, but Yeats and A were no longer friends, and I was but a poor purveyor. It is true that I told him, and without hesitation, that the succession of the Fays was a blessing in disguise, and that now he was a master in his own house, the Abbey Theatre would begin to flourish, and it would have been well if I had been confided myself to pleasant prophesizing, but very few can resist the temptation to give good advice. One thing, yet I have always had in mind, but never like to tell you, it is that you, the way you come down the steps from the stage and strut up the stalls in a light by Lady Gregory irritates the audience, and if you will allow me to be perfectly frank, I will tell you that she is a little too imposing, too suggestive of Corinne or Madame de Stael. Corinne and Mademoiselle were one of the same person, weren't they? But you don't know Yeats, do you? No, you, and I see. And so I went on pulling the cord, letting down volumes of water upon Yeats. He crouched and shivered. The water, always cold, was at times very icy, for instance, when I said that his dreams of reviving Johnson's Volpone must be abandoned. If you aren't very careful, Yeats, the academia idea will overgrow the folk. And Yeats went away overwhelmed, and I saw no more of him for many months not until it became known that Singer's persistent ill health had at last brought him to a private hospital where he lay waiting for an operation. He lives by the surgeon's knives, Yeats said to me, and I welcomed his advice to save myself from the anguish of going to see a man dying of cancer. And while Singer's perished slowly, Gregorti recovered in the same hospital after an operation for appendicitis. One man's scale drops while another goes up. As I write this line, I can see Singe, whom I shall never see again with my physical eyes, sitting thick and straight in my armchair, his large, uncouth head and flat, ashen-coloured face with 
two brown eyes looking at me, non, un, not unsympathetically. A thick stubbly growth of hair starts out of a strip of forehead like black twigs out of the head of a broom. I see a ragged moustache and he sits bolt upright in my chair, his legs crossed, his great country shoes spreading over the carpet. The conversation about us is us is of literature, but he looks as bored as Jack Yeats does in the National Gallery. Singe and Jack Yeats are like each other in this Neither takes the slightest interest in anything except life and in their own deductions from life. Educated men, both of them, but without aesthetics and Yeats's stories. A singe read the classic and was a close student of Racine. Here's a piece of Yeats's own academic mind. Singe did not read Racine oftener than Jack Yeats took at, looks at Titan. Totien, and no conclusion should be drawn from the fact that among his scraps of verse are to be found translations from Villon and Marot. They are merely exercises in versification. He was curious to see if Anglo-Irish idiom could be used in poetry. Villon wrote largely in the slang of his time, therefore Villon was selected. Whoever reads Villon rips into Marot and reads Unbill under Dufresne, and that is all for. Despite his beautiful name, Marot is an insipid poet. I am sorry for that Yeats fell into the mistake of attributing much reading to Singe. He has little love of character and could not keep himself from putting Roge on Singe's face and touching up his eyebrows. He showed greater discrimination when he said you will never know as much about French poetry as Arthur Simmons. Come to Ireland and write plays for me and for this great instinct we must forgive him in his little sins of reason. He very rightly speaks of Singe as a solitary and it is interesting to speculate what made him a solitary. Was it sense that death was lurking round the corner always in the sense that possessed no social gifts that helped to drive him out into the Aran Islands where he knew nobody and to the Latin Quarter behind the Luxembourg Gardens? where nobody knew him. A man soon perceives if he is interested in others, and if others are interested in him and he contributes nothing and gets nothing, he will slink away as Singe did. It seemed a cruel fate that decree that Singe must die before his play could be revived in Dublin, but his fate was cruel from the beginning. Yeats tells me that the lines were found among these papers. I am five and twenty today. I wonder will the five and twenty years before me be as unhappy as those I have passed through. He received Yeats's belief in his genius, and that was all he got from his life. He wrote but little, but the little he wrote was Monbudus, French stuff. His last strength he reserved for Deidre. Working at the play wherever he could, determined to finish it before he died, but he wrote slowly and his disease moved quickly from cell to cell, and before his last writing was accomplished, Singe laid aside the bed, pen and resigned himself to death. It is curious that he should have met his old friend Best on his way to the hospital. Best tells these things significantly. He asked Singe if he were going in for an operation. Singe answered no, and when Best called to see him in the hospital, he found Singe clinging to hope, little hope, though he knew he was, there was none, saying that people... Often get better when nobody expected them to get better, and he seemed to experience some disappointment when Best did not answer promptly that that was so. He used to speak of Deidre as his last disappointment, but another waited him. An hour before he died, he asked the nurse to wheel his bed into a room whence he could see the Wicklow Mountains. The hills were where he used to go for long solitary walks, and he was wheeled into the room, but the mountains could not be seen for the windows. To see them was necessary to stand up, and Singe could not stand up or sit up in his bed, so his last wish remained ungratified, and he died with tears in his eyes. Hmm, beautiful. That's so lovely. That's the end of the chapter. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the end of tonight's episode. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.